Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we attempt to get out of the way and let the Bible speak, revealing the person and presence of King Jesus today. Good morning. I am in Acts 4. Uh, We're really going to be digging into Acts 5, but we're going to set the context uh, with a few verses out of Acts 4. We're going to start in verse 32, and we're going to go through 516, chapter 5, verse 16. Um, We are literally going through the book of Acts. If you've not been with us, you might go, oh my goodness, that sounds boring. Well, let's see if the Holy Spirit of God will breathe some life in it today. Um, I'd also love for you to uh, f- keep your maybe finger there, or, or if you're scrolling on your phone, you can open a new tab, but um, open Luke 12, verse 2, and we are going to interpret what we're going to read in Acts 5 today through Luke 12, verses really, really 1 through 3, but right out of Luke 12. Okay, are you ready? Okay, so when I open my Bible, I go, Lord Jesus. In fact, would you guys repeat after me? Lord Jesus, would you speak to me? Would you convict me? Would you change me? Would you transform me? And would you fill me? Amen and amen. All right, Luke 12, verse 1. Jesus is uh, getting ready to speak, and here's what it says. Meanwhile... When a crowd of many thousands had gathered. So what size crowd? Okay, just making sure you're with me. All right. So that that they were trampling on one another. So they're stepping on one another. Okay. Just uh, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Do we have any bakers in the house? Yeah, come on. Patrick, I think that's you back there. Do you use yeast? I mean, like you you actually put yeast into um, flour and your water and dough mixture, and it leavens the entire loaf. So one little bit of yeast um, goes through the entire loaf. That's kind of the image that Jesus is painting here. And then he says, what is the yeast of the Pharisees? Which is hypocrisy which in Greek, that is Hippocrates. We're going to come back to that. Which is hypocrisy? There is nothing. Now, if, if you've never been with us before, if you're, if you're a regular here, you're probably used to this. But if you're not, then, then who are the Pharisees in our modern vernacular? Pastors, elders, teachers, church people, Christian people? Okay. <clears throat> they could be. Um, and I think it's easy, especially as we walk longer with the Lord, that we slip into sort of Pharisaism. We're going to open that whole idea today, okay? All right, so beware, be on guard uh, against the yeast of the Pharisees. And by the way, I should also say this is a right intended, a right, they, they started off on the right path, and it's like they've deviated a little bit. And that's what Jesus is warning against, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. What's that saying? There's not much that's going to stay hidden. Which probably means we have an opportunity and an invitation to make those secret things in our hearts known. 
or given time, what is God going to do? Reveal him. Okay. Humbling. Oh, Jesus. If you've not been here before, you're like, oh, man, well, this guy is. Okay. We'll keep going. All right, now I'm in Acts 4. Now, the, um, Acts 4 was also written by Dr. Luke. The Gospel of Luke was written by who? Also Dr. Luke. He's the only Gentile author. Gentile means just non-Jewish in the entire Bible. I really love him. He's got this, like, scientific brain. What's really amazing about what we're about to read is many times, I think us as modern Christians, we sort of assume and look at the Bible almost like the good old days, like everything is perfect, Right? But what Luke does again and again and again is he discloses these uncomfortable scenarios and realities that are going on deep inside what I'll call this morning the Jerusalem experiment or this New Testament church. He even does it in his gospel. But he is about to reveal something that is like, oh man, if we were writing this today, we would probably omit it just to help Jesus look a little better. You know what I'm saying? Okay. All right, so let's dig in here, Um, and I want you to hold Luke 12 especially to a warning against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hold that as we uh, jump into this. Okay, Acts 4, starting in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. That's serious. We're we're talking, I mean, we're over 5,000 now. We're two, three, four, five months from the time Christ was resurrected from the dead. Um, And it says all the believers were one in heart and one in mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Verse 34, that there were no needy persons among them. Man, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Okay, let me, let me just like, because this, this is a hard text in some ways, and we're just going to open this thing up. You know what I am committed to do. I will give you the best of my ability, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me Jesus. Okay? So let's, let's just open this. I think it's really important, and we're really driving towards chapter 5. we got the table here in chapter 4. As we interpret this particular text, and really all text, we should probably avoid like extremist positions. Okay? So here's what I mean. Um, I don't think that we can judge that this like communal experiment or this Jerusalem experiment that happened in Acts 5 was a foolish mistake. Some people have. Okay? I similarly don't think that we can say that what is laid down here in Acts 4 and 5 is an obligatory model for all sort of spirit-filled Christian communities. Okay? Just general reminder, they are living under severe persecution, not only by Rome, but by Herod, under penalty of death. There's a lot going on. If we were ever in a spot, in fact, if I took you this morning and I took you into some of the Iranian church communities uh, worshiping today in Turkey, um, or even under cover of secrecy and darkness in Iran, or if I took you into some of the Chinese churches that were worshiping in secrecy today, um, or even the Indian churches or the Cambodian churches, what you would actually find is a much more communal experience out of need. Does that make sense? 
So, but I think we have to be careful. So could, could at some point um, this country in which we live be so adverse towards Christians that we can no longer meet in a public school? And could at that point we be driven back to some type of communal living? Maybe. In the meantime, I don't think we can say, oh, we need to all go sell everything we own and put it in a big pot. That's not what this is saying. Okay? All right, so that's what I mean by be wise and avoid extremist positions. Okay. Um, and I think just one other little thing that I would say here, you have to be very careful with the Bible. When you read a truth, you have to go, is this a universal truth or is this a specific truth for this point in time in history? And I would say this is a specific truth with some universal truths within it. Okay, fair enough? Um, okay, so now, I think the last point that I would say just on this text is we should not, however, negate that God may call some of you to sell a house or to sell a car or to give of a stock or to give money or even give super sacrificially. I don't think we should ever negate that he may call you to do that. And if he calls you to do that and you choose not to, you would be in disobedience and, and would there really be missing the, the blessing and all that God had intended for you to get. Okay? All right, let's keep going. Um, <clears throat> verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, that's a little island, whom uh, the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, I love this guy, Barnabas. Um, there's a whole sermon in just Barnabas. We're not going to do it today, but Barnabas is like, Barnabas is the one that gets full credit, in my opinion, with bringing the apostle Paul into the fullness of his ministry. So Apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote like 65, 66% of the New Testament. And this guy is the guy I believe gets credit because he goes and gets the Apostle Paul and brings him back to where Paul launches his ministry. So it's a, he's a like, in my opinion, he's like the guy behind the guy. You know what I'm saying? He's a giant in the faith. Okay, so um, he, verse 37, sold a field he owned and he brought the money and put it at the Apostle's feet. So what did he do? Sold a field. Okay, uh, Josh, can you be my Barnabas? Okay, Josh is going to be my Barnabas here this morning. <clears throat> let's just say, let's just put this in modern context. We're doing church together. We're kind of doing life together. We're drinking our coffee. We're worshiping together. We're all the stuff we're doing. We're doing small groups together. And one of us, uh, Josh, feels called to sell this piece of property that he and Shannon have had for a long time. And he sells it for $100,000. I'm putting it in modern American terms. And he brings that entire thing and he takes it to the lead team of elders here at Saltbox. And he says, here, this is what we sold the property for. Now, do you think that would leak out? Probably. Josh sold their lot. I mean, like, whoa. And he gave. And some of us are thinking like, well, I need a new minivan. And my kids need, you know, some stuff for their education. And I've got some medical debt. And I've got my par aging parents need to be taken care of. And I've got, you, you fill in the blank, right? I've got a, uh, you know, this, this niece or this nephew that needs their education paid for. Or we could go on and on, right? And, and to when we hear of someone else's radical generosity or they didn't even keep a little bit back, what is the church, what are we as the church thinking and feeling then about Josh? I mean, like, whoa. Is there some awe? Yeah. Is there some respect? Is there some, like, man, the chops on that dude? I mean, man, the faith on that couple. So in this moment, when Barnabas sells this field and he brings the money and he puts it at the apostles' feet, what is happening to Barnabas in the eyes of the church? 
He's being lifted. So he is being revered. He is being honored. He is being lifted. And everyone is looking at him. Now, here's what I'm going to propose to you as we jump into chapter 5. Is there's a man named Ananias. And he's got a wife named um, Sapphira. And we're going to try to open this as best we can. And I think what begins to happen, and I'll show you in the text here in just a minute, but what begins to happen is as Barnabas um, is suddenly esteemed, so his, um, his sense of respect, his well-being, so suddenly when Barnabas now walks into a room of believers, or we know from the very end of chapter 5 that they're meeting in Solomon's colonnade, that's 5 verse 12 if you want to look down there, but they're meeting together in the temple. So now when Barnabas walks in to a big crowd of believers, what do they all do? They might quiet down. They might look at him. He now commands this sense of respect. So you've got Ananias and Sapphira who are in the crowd. They're a couple. And God may or may not have, but he probably planted in Ananias and Sapphira's heart the desire to be significant leaders in this blossoming New Testament church. And instead of trusting God to um, release them into their position, their call, their influence, they look at old Barnabas and they start to go, I want to be him. I want what he has. He's got this esteem. He's got this respect. People like stand with a little bit of awe when he walks in because there's like he lives under the power of God. This is like something different about this guy. But all of a sudden, Ananias and Sapphira, instead of trusting God um, to bring them into the fullness of their call, they're now what we would say jealous or, or they're coveting if you want to use an old testament burden they're coveting what barnabas has generally speaking though and this is a side note but i think it's really important generally speaking i believe if you're coveting something that someone else has it could be that god has called you to something similar and you ought to repent and go god will you forgive me and not only would you forgive me but would you help me trust you to bring me into the fullness of whatever that that desire is in our lives make sense okay so I think you've got Ananias and Sapphira who are truly believers. Um, they, are, they, they probably love God at some level. They've given their life to him at some level, but now they're all of a sudden jealous and coveting. So let's see what happens here in chapter 5. And I love this about the Bible that Luke doesn't hide what's about to happen. I mean, this is a raging disaster that is going on inside of the church. Is the hand of God stopped? No. Is the person of the Holy Spirit diminished? No, is Luke even as he's penning this, is he like wringing his hands with anxiety going, oh, I'm going to make God look bad so I shouldn't say it. I mean, you think about it, in, in today's, even in the last five years, there's been a number of pastors and leaders that have been exposed or fallen, and we get all, oh, it's, it's very similar in the New Testament church. Okay, let's keep reading. Acts 5. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. We want to be like Barnabas. Okay. <clears throat> With his wife's full knowledge, he kept part of the money for himself. Now, i got to read a couple more verses, and then we'll back up so you can understand this. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, who else put money at the apostles' feet? So you see, like, the, the exact copycat repetition of what God did in Barnabas' life? 
And they are exactly copycatting there. So, so this is what sort of leads me into my whole line of thinking as this entire text. And if I would say anything that I am contending for and want us to contend for as a church and you to even contend for as, as a body and congregation that lives this life together is that we would um, follow God uniquely um, into all that he has for us, that we'd follow the cloud, to use an Old Testament Exodus uh, sort of um, analogy, but that we would follow the cloud into what God has for us and we wouldn't simply mimic and copycat what is happening somewhere else. You hear me? And a lot of Christianity, the big C, capital C Christian church right now, it, we're, we're like, oh, if it's working there and if it, you know, then we're going to reproduce it here and surely God will show up. Sometimes, but sometimes not. Okay. <clears throat> so Ananias and Sapphira bring, or, or excuse me, um, Ananias with his wife's full knowledge kept part of the money and he goes, isn't it interesting? He doesn't even bring his wife. So who wants the glory here? And it says, go, back, go down to chapter 5, verse 12. Um, excuse me, not 12. Yeah, 12. They were meeting together at Solomon's colonnade. So they're meeting in the temple. There's probably thousands of people gathered. I, my, this is Michael's guess, but I'm guessing that um, Ananias takes his big sack of money or gold or whatever it was, and he brings it in on the day that is most crowded. And they're the most people there, and he wants to be seen. So he, he trudges up, you know, slowly and dramatically up to the apostles, and he lays it at their feet, and he does whatever he's going to do. And everybody in the hole that's watching around, what do they do? He must be like, okay. Then Peter said, Ananias how is it? I mean, Peter under the most like divine revelation. Oh my goodness. Peter is such a changed man. The arrogant, self-righteous, like self-seeking, self-promoting punk fisherman is no more. This is Peter filled with the person of Jesus. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled, if, if you're new here, you don't understand Satan. Satan is not God's opposite. Satan is a creating, created being, an angel um, that was thrown out of heaven for the exact same thing that Ananias is doing here, basically, okay? So then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Now, here's the key, in my opinion, verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? All right, so who did the land belong to? Ananias. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? So who, owned, who was in control of the money? Ananias, okay, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Okay, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died on the spot. We'll talk about that. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out to be buried. I've read a number of, of commentators on this, but the way I would essentially piece it all together is I would say Ananias goes out and he sells his land for 150000 And he takes fifty, and he's like... And then he brings his hundred, just like Barnabas, and he wants credit for giving 100% of the proceeds of his land to the church for caring for those who are impoverished or hurting or broken. And he brings it forward in this dramatic way, and he wants everybody to go, oh, Barnabas. 
I'm going I'm to quote a commentator, and I want to tie it together with this right here. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which he had no right, he told a brazen and outright lie. You follow? Let me say it again. They wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told an outright brazen lie to God and to all the people. And what did God do? I can't believe they put this in the Bible. And, and then we got to ask the question, like, okay, if they put this in the Bible... Because Luke put it in the Bible, it was proofed and agreed upon by the Apostle Paul, probably the other apostles before they died. It was then ratified and put into the canon of Scripture many years later by the church fathers and mothers. But if this was put into the Bible, then it's not only historical, but it is, it's part of the journey. And I love that God is not trying to cover up what happened. So lest we sit here today and look back and go, wow, that must have been the good old days. Everything was great. Everything was perfect. No, 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 no. There's jealousy. There's covetousness. There's anger. There's like people are gossiping about each other. They're trying to tear one another down. They're vying for positions. They're competing for who's going to hold the awe and fear and respect of the whole New Testament church. I mean, there's all sorts of the same mess that goes on in church today is going on right here. Is the presence and power of Jesus diminished? No. But it does make us go, Father, help us understand. Okay. <clears throat> um. Let me do two things. Let me, let me take a second um, and unpack Old Testament and New Testament giving. And then I want to unpack this, um, this idea of hypocrite. And then we'll go back to the text. Okay? You're just going to have to hang with me. And you're going to have to trust me that this thing is going to swing all the way back around. Okay? Come on. All right. Old Testament and New Testament giving. It is crystal clear from Genesis to Revelation, I'm not going to take you through it, but you give to God from the first. The very first, what you gather, you give to God from the first. So that means you don't get to pay all your bills and then give what's left. And, and what that is, it's an external representation of a full heart posture and surrender. It's when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It's the same thing. It's like give to God out of the best. So um, practically speaking, what does that mean? I believe it means that when you're paid by however you're paid, direct deposit or check or whatever, that you actually, that the first thing that God calls you to do is give back to him. You, you follow me? So just practically, like in, in Abby and my marriage, in our life, I, I literally do this. This is funny, but I literally do this. I write a check. Some of you don't even know what a check is anymore. Like, that probably makes me old school and weird, doesn't it? But I cut a check. And the first check that I try to cut is to God. Have I always done that? No. Have there been seasons of my life where I was stingy and stole from God and didn't give him what was his due? Yes. Are there still seasons when I look at that check and I'm like, we got this and we got this and we got this and I'm... Yes. 
Oh, Pastor Michael isn't holy. He's not. But you know who is? Jesus in me. So what I attempt to do is I've got this silly little manila envelope, like this folder thing, and I write down all our little finances, and I have this tithe, and the first check that I try to cut every single month is to God. I give to God. So that's Old Testament, New Testament principle. Old Testament um, is that you would give a percentage, uh, a 10%, um, and, and so the, the, the benchmark in the Old Testament is you would give 10% off of your gross income. Now, here's the funny thing. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say 10%. So tithing is an Old Testament benchmark that comes into the New Testament, and here's what the New Testament says. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. But they shared everything they had. I've known two people in my life, um, and I've, I've verified it to the best of my ability, but I've known two people in my life that gave 90% and lived off 10. And you'd never know it. You know, if he walked in here, you'd, you'd like never know his net worth. Like never. But gave 90 and lived off. Is that the goal? You know, I don't know, church, and I'm not going to pretend to know, and I'm not going to give you a little Jesus Sunday school answer, but here's what I know. I think the benchmark is 10%, and I think it goes up from there. Now, when I sit and meet with people, I meet with people all the time, and they're in financial duress, and here's what I'm going to say. Start where you can. Generous percentage giving. Michael, we can't afford to feed our family. Well, then let's start with what you can do. Can you, do, can you cut something? Can you cut your whatever, you know, your Netflix, and give that $10 a month? Maybe. Okay, do it. Just give $10 a month. Just do it. And watch what God does. That's the principle, okay? And then I'm convinced that this is valuable from Genesis to Revelation because where your money is is where your heart is. Where your treasure is is where you're fully vested. And let me say to anyone in the room who's very wealthy or even very poor, it's not a sin to be very wealthy. It's not a sin to be very poor. What is a sin is to rely upon your wealth or lack thereof instead of relying upon King Jesus. Okay, uh, it's also, I would say, a sin to hoard your wealth. Well, Michael, how much is hoarding? I don't know. I don't know. It's probably different for every one of us. But there's a point at which you go, once you've acquired so much, it's probably time that you begin to chew the meat and spit the bones. What lack of giving or lack of generosity reveals about us is hardness of heart towards God. It's exactly the same as me getting on my knees. Like I love to get on my knees in worship and even up here in front of you guys upon occasion because I am demonstrating with an external posture a position of my heart. It's the same with your money. You're just saying, God, it's yours. And it just reminds you. My brother-in-law does this thing. I don't, I don't know. He I don't know where he got it, but I just love it about him. He, um, if, he, if you ever look at his wallet, pull out his wallet, he has, like, um, gods. Like, he, he, like, printed it and had it laminated, and it's, like, on his little, it's on his wallet. And it just reminds him. Whose is it? Okay, cool. Whatever works. Okay, now, so let's, let's get back into this. So you got Ananias and Sapphira. I didn't think I could fully handle this text without 
giving you all that. Okay, so that's, a, that's a, the upshot on giving. Okay, now, the word um, hypocrite that we opened with in Luke 12, 2 um, comes into English from the Greek word Hippocrates, Hippocrates, which means actor or stage player. And so uh, in ancient Greece, what the actors or stage players would do is they would wear a hypocrite. You know what a hypocrite was? It was a big mask. And so the big mask would actually differentiate um, each character. So people would know what character was walking out on the stage. And the literal uh, trans, uh, translation um, is it is a, an interpreter from underneath. So the person would interpret this character from underneath. But what people would see is the... The mask. So what Jesus is beginning to say to the Pharisees, and I think what he's also saying here into the New Testament church is, I am not interested in people who are cleaning up the outside and pretending to be something they're not. I am not interested in people who think they can earn their way into my grace or favor by changing the outside. Rather, I'm looking for hearts that are deeply and significantly humbled and surrendered before me. And to the extent that we're covering or hiding, and it, it's really funny because the entirety of the current church move, the, 20, the 2000, 1999, 2000 to 2023 right now, this entire church move that we're in came out of a rebellion against high steeples, hymn books, stained glass, liturgy, because they went, hey, all of that can become a mask. Well, guess what the new mask can become? A certain style of music, blacked out auditoriums, lights, tennies, and the works. You, you hear me? Anything can become. And in fact, what we do as a church over the next 10 or 20 years, somebody may come in at some point and they may mimic what we've done and it may become for them a... You, you, this is like universal, like we're all, it's level at the foot of the cross. Okay. Uh, so... When, and I think I would, I'd say just with such clarity, when you grasp the holiness and righteousness of God, you simultaneously grasp your own brokenness and depth of sin. It's how the Apostle Paul could say, I am the chief sinner. Okay, follow me? So uh, I've got a friend, I think she's sitting back here, I thought I saw her, Joyce. Joyce and Bill, I don't know where they are. Joyce, uh, she, she likes to say to me once in a while, she says, Michael, you like to tell on yourself. Now, what did we read at the beginning? What's going to be shouted from the rooftops? What's going to be shouted from the rooftops? Okay, so, Michael, you like to tell on yourself, I do, and you know why? Because I don't want to hide behind a fake religious mask. I am an imperfect man. I'm an imperfect husband. I'm an imperfect father. I hurt my little girl's feelings this week, and I had to go and ask her forgiveness. Guess what that is? It's taking that Hippocrates off. It's acknowledging the truth. It's humbling ourselves. And it's inviting the presence and power of Jesus into our human relationships, into our homes, into our marriages, into our lives. It's powerful. Isn't it interesting, and we're going to go back to the text here in a minute, but that Jesus was gentle with prostitutes, with alcoholics, with tax collectors, with those caught in adultery, and he was harsh only with the 
Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the teachers of the law, those on the great Sanhedrin, who he was saying were whitewashed sepulchers hiding behind hypocrites, hiding behind masks, Hippocrates. So let's go back to this for just a second and see if we can open this up. I'm in verse 5 of chapter 5. Sometimes you get these passages that are just harder to preach. Do you know that? <laughs> sometimes you get these that are like stomping good, and it's like, woo! But sometimes they're just harder, so that's what it is. All right, uh, Acts 5, verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. I don't know what biologically was going on in his body at that point. Did his heart give out? I, I don't know. But here's what it says. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. So, this is Michael's opinion, but if he had the largest crowd at Solomon's colonnade, if he was trying to be seen by the most people, if he was coveting what Barnabas had done, if he wanted all of that respect and admiration, then all a whole bunch of people would have been around. And can you imagine what church would have been like today if somebody would have died on the front row? No, I mean, go there just a second. What if God showed up and it's like, boom, and it said the people came in and carried him out? What would people leave here and say to their friends? Ah, don't go to that church. I don't know what happened, but they carried somebody else. I mean, like, we don't think of that, but like, guys, this is real. This happened. In other words, and, and like, this is church in a fishbowl because they're meeting at the temple, which was the very center of Jerusalem, center of Jewish culture. So thousands upon 10,000s of people are passing through the temple every single day. And everybody who's anybody knows that, knows that some guy died today and they carried him out. And what's everybody in the entire city saying? I mean, they're like, what? <clears throat> Great fear seized all who heard what happened. Verse six, then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Because who wanted all the glory? Ananias, that's my opinion, but verse eight, Peter asked her in the great rabbinic way, Peter asked a question, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got from the land? So remember our example, they sold it for 150, they kept 50 back for themselves, but they wanted credit for getting the whole thing. Is this the price you and Ananias Verse 8, uh, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she says, that is the price. She wanted the credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience and sacrifice of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which she had no right, she lied. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. I mean, Peter declared it before it happened. Like, that is like, I don't know. I don't understand spiritual authority, but that is spiritual authority. Verse 10, at that moment, she fell down at his feet and, now remember, Solomon's colonnade, they're in the temple, thousands are coming and going, who knows, maybe three, four, five, six thousand people are, are, of the church are there that day. And what is everyone doing? I mean, they're at the coffee bar and they're at the bathrooms and they're in the hallways and they're like, did you see what happened? And some of them are running for dear life. 
I don't want anything to do with this, these crazy people. Is God afraid? Is Luke afraid? Are the apostles afraid? I mean, this is why these people are wild to me. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That's at the temple. Verse 13, no one else dared join them. I mean, this is a great like evangelism tool to the city. This is what we do at our church. And what's the city do? No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. So the city has huge respect for this growing church. Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. A little bit of an oxymoron there. Even though um, everyone is afraid and wants to stay away from them, I would think even the Roman soldiers, even Herod's people, they're all like staying away from the religious people. But what is also simultaneously happening? People are being drawn. And people are coming to the Lordship of Christ. Okay, let's open some things up here um, and, and make a few points um, and see if we can make some application to our own hearts and lives. Uh, if you're taking notes, make a note of Joshua 7, because there's a guy named Achan there. I'm not going to go into it, but I, it's, the, it's a very similar. It's the launch of the Old Testament church when the people enter the promised land for the first time. There's a guy named Achan in the New Testament church. They're launching the church for the first time, and you got this guy named Ananias, and both of them. Um, are killed for like disobedience. So the question that I'm beginning to ask now is, why did God see fit to do this? What is he saying? What does it mean for us today? Like, what is this? Like, it's like, you're like, okay, I got it. I got the context. I see it. But how does that impact my heart and my life today? Why is that important for us? Why has Pastor Michael spent time even opening this? And I wish we didn't even read this scripture because it makes me feel weird. And how can God be a God of mercy and grace and love and simultaneously deal with Ananias and Sapphira like that? Those are the questions. Are they fair? Okay, let's open it. All right, so the, the church um, at this point um, is, <clears throat> okay, Father, help us. When Jesus walked on earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, who did he criticize? Harshest criticism. Pharisees, Sadducees, all the religious people. Okay, and he called them not to be whitewashed sepulchers. So think of a whitewashed sepulcher. Uh, a sepulcher is a, a burial grave. So it's clean and white on the outside, and on the inside it's full of dead people. That's what he's saying. Don't be like that. So we have a similar situation here. So if I could say something with just like crystalline clarity, it would be that God is establishing from the very beginning when there is possibly a significant man and woman, Ananias and Sapphira, who may be arising up into leadership in the journey. He is drawing a line and he is saying, as we launch this New Testament church, I will not allow hypocrisy of heart. I will not allow people who are lying to God and to me or seeking reputation, who want to fatten their own ego. I will not allow those people to rise into positions of leadership and therefore I will cut them off and I will protect my church. You follow me? Okay, now let's, let's open this um, perhaps even further. <clears throat> and, and I want to say this. Um, I, 
I want to make a theological statement about the death of Ananias. And this could be hard for some of you, and that's, that's okay. But I, this is, as I, as I um, search the scriptures, I go, Father, what does this mean? Here's what I believe it means. I believe based on the bookends of God's mercy. Okay, bookends. Some of you don't even have books anymore, but like on a shelf with these little things that hold the books up, bookends. Okay, within the bookends of God's mercy, that God by his great grace took Ananias home. So I actually think Ananias is a Christian. And I think he took Ananias home. And in doing so, he saved Ananias from himself and for himself. This is heavy, I get it, sorry. I believe that Ananias is a believer. I believe that Sapphira is a believer. I think we're gonna see him in heaven. It's just my opinion, I can't prove it. That's what I believe. And I think God and his sovereignty looked into the hardness of what was happening inside Ananias' heart and Sapphira's heart. He saw where it would end and he went, my son, I love you too much. I am gonna save you from yourself and I am gonna save you for myself, God. You follow me? So he promoted them into eternity. Now, would then theologically they have missed out on all of the heavenly blessing of the ministry in place and, and the, the potential that they had? Yes, but they would have been saved both from themselves and saved for God himself. Like it's, this is a like sovereign kingdom of God, big picture thinking, but I think it is absolutely powerful when you begin to grasp that. I believe Sapphira was the exact same way. And so then this becomes a holy God. And in this place, God is not preaching a sermon to the New Testament church. He is saying, listen to me, the New Testament church will not be twisted upon sinful hearts like the Pharisees who hide behind their hypocrites. No, no, no. The New Testament church will be defined by people who choose to humble their hearts before him, who are hungry before him, who surrender their lives truly before him, and who are increasingly becoming becoming more and more self-aware, disclosing the things that are secret within them. You follow me? Okay. Let's, um, let's move uh, sort of towards some application here. So the church that's meeting publicly in Solomon's portico, it's full of signs and wonders. Like the gospel is like fully visible. Um, there's complete unity. 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people if you add women and children and all this stuff. And that's no slight on women. It's just the way they counted at this time in history. Um, there were uh, clear boundaries between believers and unbelievers. Evangelism is effective. Generosity is radical. Sickness is healed. Unclean spirits are, are driven out. I mean, um, and, and people um, who, who believe did not join just church. They joined Jesus. So, you know, I think what I would say to us is these things, this type of thing, Ananias and Sapphira, um, even if you look at uh, Acts 5, verse 15, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them in beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall of some of them as he passed by. Um, <clears throat> and then skip down. And all of them were healed, like everyone. Like what is breaking out here is so unusual. And I think one of the things that we begin to think about is, God, why isn't this happening in the church today? And I want to flip that question just a bit, and I want us to sort of analyze, do you want this to happen in the church today? 
So do I want to belong to a church where the presence of God is so thick? We like the presence of God if it gives us shivers and chills and makes us feel good during worship. But if the presence of God is doing Ananias and Sapphira, I, do you want to be involved in a church where sin is brought out and occasionally publicly exposed? Do you want to be a part of a church where even the demonic, which is just fallen dark angels, manifest themselves occasionally? That's what it says here. It's happening. Unclean spirits. Do I want to belong to a church that engages strictly in academic Bible study and inflates our knowledge and ego, or a church that drives us into dependence out of a fear of a holy God? So I think what we begin to open here is can we today, in the here and now, begin to see church like this? And I think we can. In fact, one of the biggest lies I think that's prevalent right now is that we can't have a church like this, that God has ceased to move like this, that he doesn't exist like this. And I'd say to us, has God changed? No. no. Has his word changed? No. Has the person of Jesus changed? No. The issue becomes then, do you and I really want to be a part of a church where the presence and renewal and, and person of Jesus is there? Yes, but we go, oh my goodness, but all of us have a little bit of hip. So let me tell you something that happened. Um, Abby and I were on vacation last week, and uh, I had gotten up early, and I had made all our lunches, and I had packed the cooler. And um, so Abby and our, and our two younger kids were all together, and we're talking. And Amelia's like, Mama, I'm so glad that you made our lunch. And I'm so glad that you brought me this sweet treat. And I'm so glad that you... And guess what I did? Come on, go, go the base worst version of Michael. Come on. Perfect pastor, here I am. I did, your mom, I did, I did that. And I, I literally, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, the moment it crept out of my mouth, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, here I am, polishing the outside of Michael's cup preserving Michael's ego, wanting to demonstrate who gets credit for this, and I'm getting ready to preach on Ananias and Sapphira, and... God always does. I always have to live under the word and in the word before he lets me preach the word. Now, somebody asked me the other week, Michael, how big's your church? Guess what I wanted to do? And I'm like... you hear me? Is there hypocrisy in Michael's heart? Is there hypocrisy in your heart? The question is not, is it there? The question is, are we progressively becoming more open and surrendering it before the Lord Jesus and to each other? That's the question. This isn't about perfection. And you need not sit out there. And some of you may have a significant sin that you're hiding. And I would say, go sit with someone and share it. Open it up, because it will ultimately be declared from the rooftops. So what do you do if you recognize that you've got some hypocrisy in you? What do you think I did? I said, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? I was wrong. I'm seeking my own end, my own will, my own way. I'm polishing the outside of the cup, and I, I did it again. Will you forgive me? 
So take a deep breath, first of all, and just repent. Secondly, breathe in the goodness and forgiveness of God. Jesus already paid. We're getting ready to celebrate communion, and that's about not beating yourself up for what you've done or failed to do, but it's about appropriating his grace. Take a step and begin to acknowledge some of the hypocrisy in whose life? Yeah, that's what we're doing. Remind yourself it's not about all that you've done or failed to do. And then I'd say take an action step. Instead of hiding your shortcomings and fears and failures, don't hide them. Rather, expose them. Share them. Go find somebody trusted and open it up. Expose them to the light of day. Uh, action, second action step. Stop polishing your image and participating really with the work of the enemy and begin to participate with Jesus on the renovation of your heart. That's the gospel. Another action step, stop trying to appear good and start acknowledging your own brokenness so that you can bring it into the light and the transforming power of Jesus can take action upon it. God can't deliver you from your friends. You hear me? He can't deliver you from the thing you're holding on to. Ananias and Sapphira were holding on in such a way that God, the power of God, could not deliver them from that thing. They wouldn't surrender it to him. So they, he delivered Ananias, saving him from himself and for God eternal. God will only deliver us from the things that we surrender before him and bring into the light and then the blood will cover it. Adam, will you guys come back out? Matthew 25, 40 says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me, Christ. Michael's tone of voice with my kids. Come on. The way I treat my Spouse, the way I interact with our staff, the way I treat our volunteers, the way I interact with other churches, the way I interact with other pastors, the way we talk to neighbors, the way we interact. There are, if we are, if we are ruthless with ourselves, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, then I think what you will begin to find is there's many, many areas in our life where we hide behind Hippocrates, little masks. And I think the invitation of the gospel then and now, and the reason God did this in front of everyone is because he invited them to expose the sin of their own hearts so they could find forgiveness and redemption and grace. Make sense? That's the gospel. Father everlasting, your creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. 
judge and our defender, suffer and crucify. Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness, you rose in glorious light. Forever seated high. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. gather to lift up the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, we would say with one heart and with one mind, to the best of our ability, would you have your way in us and through us? Father, would you help us out from behind our Hippocrates? Father, would you help us be progressively more real, more vulnerable, and more open with you and with each other? Father, would you breathe grace on those areas that we have hidden? Father, I pray that your mercy would be prevalent here in this house. And Lord, I pray that your presence would be powerful and palpable. Father, as we take this communion, would you appropriate into our very beings the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the coronation of King Jesus. That it's not about us, it's about you in us and through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Take and eat and drink.
Adam, I'm going to go ahead and close us, but could we end with the heart of worship? I love that song. It's one of my favorites. Uh, prayer team, if you'll come up and just make yourself available. If you need special prayer, I want to invite you to come down here and join us. We are not, um, these are special, delightful people, but they're not special, overly spiritual people. They're normal people. And if you need prayer for anything, come down. Um, I'm going to ask Adam and Missy to lead us um, in, a, in, a, in a final song, but I'm also going to dismiss us so we can be sensitive to our kids, uh, workers, and areas. We love you guys. Jesus is here. Go from this place resting in his fullness and in his grace. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.